0: I love that last line so that every heart can have its new beginning. If you're a regular visitor to God's word and I hope you are. And if you're paying to the attention if you're paying attention to the author of God's word when you visit the Holy Spirit, you'll eventually come to recognize that when God has something to say, he isn't limited to words. Now, he uses words. He uses words to communicate his plans, to convey his prophecies, to communicate his promises. But the processes he uses in fulfilling his plans and his promises also communicate, sometimes more than God's words themselves. And Jesus' arrival in human flesh was a case in point. The circumstances surrounding his arrival have as much to say to us as the prophecies that predicted it and the narratives that described it. And that's why I want to consider those processes today. To begin our consideration, I want to open by reading two biblical passages. They emerged out of vastly different events, and they are set in very different times. But they flow from the heart of the same Holy Spirit, so it should come as no surprise that they complement and complete one another. The first passage I'm going to read speaks to the rebuilding of the physical temple in Jerusalem, something thought to be impossible. The second speaks to the arrival of the Messiah who is currently constructing his living spiritual temple in the world. And taken together, these two verses remind us of something we can easily, easily forget. The first verse is something of both a reminder and a rebuke. It's found in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, the fourth chapter, the tenth verse. And it simply says, do not despise these small beginnings. The second passage is a straightforward narrative of events. It's found in Luke 2, 7, and it's often heard this time of year. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger. For my title today, I borrowed a line from a chorus I sang frequently as a young boy growing up in the church. It went like this, Little is much if God is in it. Little is much if God is in it. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, We are thankful that we have this opportunity to engage your Holy Spirit in two ways. We get to engage your Holy Spirit by fellowshipping with fellow believers because the Spirit resides in every believer. So when we come together in Christian community, we're engaging you in a way that we can't do entirely on our own. But we're also here today to engage you through your living word. It was breathed by the Holy Spirit. It is not the product of human thinking and certainly not human speculation. It is your revelation, your love letter to the human race. As we engage you through one another and through your word. Lord, you've given me the privilege of teaching. That is a serious and sobering responsibility and I gladly confess I cannot do it on my own. So as always I ask for a fresh equipping and an empowering from your Holy Spirit that will enable me to faithfully echo your heart, faithfully represent your truth, adding nothing, subtracting nothing. And Father, we recognize we can't grasp your truth, can't understand it, let alone apply it without the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us in this never-to-be-repeated moment of time. Help us to hear what you're saying to us collectively and individually. Help us to respond with faith. And as always, we pray these things for the honor of Christ. For the sake of his work in the world. And we pray them in his great name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to our hearts this Christmas Sunday, may the Lord be with you. Almost 12 years ago, my wife Karen and I gained a new appreciation for small things. We had found a buyer for our home in the Mexican War Streets. The closing was scheduled for the day before Thanksgiving. For reasons that should be obvious, it wasn't an ideal closing date, the day before Thanksgiving. But that's what the buyer wanted, and the agreed-upon price was agreeable to us. And so we honored the buyer's wishes. Now, contrary to what you might be assuming right about now, the timing of the sale wasn't inconvenient or problematic because it meant we wouldn't be able to host family Thanksgiving in our home. It actually afforded us a wonderful, viable excuse to pass the responsibility to our adult children so that we could just show up, eat, and leave at a convenient time. It was problematic because it left us temporarily homeless. Death, taxes, and construction delays are the givens of life. Nobody avoids them. And our new Urban Redevelopment Authority financed home on Federal Street was stuck in the latter. Construction delays and paperwork delays. So we moved our stuff into one of those storage places And we spent the next eight months living out of a small space, one room in our daughter Autumn's home. That's why you should always treat your children well. (laughs) You never know when you might have to move in with them. Now, living out of one room was a bit inconvenient, but come on, it was a first-world inconvenience and hardly worth a second thought, and certainly Not worthy of a prayer request. Come on. And besides, we enjoyed watching the reactions of new acquaintances as we answered the inevitable, so where do you guys live question by stating, oh, we live in one room with one of our children. And then we just left it there. We didn't volunteer any further details because it was just fun to watch the wheels start turning. They didn't know if they should feel sorry for us, pray for us, maybe offer us a few bucks. That's that's why I didn't offer details, see? Now, our temporary housing experience put me in mind of our text, obviously with some clear differences. A lower-level entertainment room is a far cry from a manger. We didn't arrive on foot and on the back of a gray donkey. We arrived in a gray Honda CRV. No angel chorus announced our arrival in Perry Hilltop. No shepherds, no scholars drop by for a visit unless you count the occasional Jehovah Witness. And last, but certainly not least, Karen did not give birth. (laughs) At age 58, that would have been a miracle of biblical proportions. (laughs) And I would have had my first heart attack far before the time I eventually did. The parallel was in the fact that our move into something better had its beginnings in something small. Our move into something better had its beginnings in something small. Now, in the sight of human society, the major players in the Christmas narrative appeared very small indeed. Joseph and Mary were painfully aware of that fact long before the events that eventually culminated in Jesus' birth. Because Mary and Joseph knew that they were citizens of a subjugated nation. Their nation had been conquered. They were living under the hobnail boot of Rome. They no longer had freedom. They no longer had autonomy. They no longer had the privilege of setting their course. They knew who called the shots in their world. Rome called all the shots. And they knew that they were little more than nameless, faceless statistics in the sight of the Roman Empire. They were little people. And when obscure people forget their lowly place in the pecking order, empires have a way of reminding them of their place. And Rome reminded Mary and Joseph Because Joseph was forced to take time off from work, that's lost income, they were forced to incur unwelcome travel expenses and to face the inevitable dangers of travel in that day just so they could visit Joseph's ancestral home for a census, a bureaucratic exercise made necessary by yet another Roman tax one that was likely aimed at funding Rome's escalating military budget and expanding budget deficits. So a couple the world saw as little found themselves at the mercy of people who fancied themselves big. All that to say this. God's cosmic plan to save broken humanity and restore his broken planted planet couldn't have started much smaller. It involved two working-class peasants at the mercy of a godless empire. Yet today, we join countless believers across the globe in every time zone to celebrate what subsequently unfolded in the lives of that obscure couple. So, for that reason, I'd like to propose there are truths embedded in the incarnation narratives that are frequently overlooked because they aren't declared in words. Instead, they're revealed in the process God employed on the way to fulfilling His words. Let me suggest them to you, beginning with this one. God's large work Often begins with seemingly little quiet events. Like the birth of a working class subjugated Hebrew child in a Roman dominated world. Nothing big there. For that reason, God's history changing agendas rarely alive, arrive, excuse me, to the accompaniment of human fanfare. Now, I know in the case of Jesus' birth, there was that angel chorus that appeared to the shepherds, but that wasn't human fanfare, that was angelic fanfare, and it initially produced a whole lot of human fear before it produced celebration. And I'd remind you, the audience share was pitifully small, a handful of shepherds. The venue was a field, not a venue. The media ignored the event. And the guests occupied the lowest rungs of the social ladder because even in Hebrew culture, shepherds were considered to be at the bottom of the social ladder. They were so distrusted that they weren't allowed to bear witness in a court of law. The common thinking was you could tell when a shepherd was lying, his lips were moving. And that leads to my second observation. God's large work often begins with seemingly small, obscure people. Seemingly small. Even when God chooses to use highly visible and powerful figures, like a Pharaoh, like a Nebuchadnezzar, like a Cyrus... The final scenes of the dramas inevitably reveal that the big and the powerful were only playing supporting roles. The stars of the show are an imprisoned Hebrew slave named Joseph, an exiled Hebrew teenager named Daniel, and a modest otherwise unknown Hebrew patriot named Nehemiah. In that same vein, the incarnation affirms that God's large work often begins in seemingly small, obscure places. Jesus' arrival took place in the backwater of Bethlehem rather than the boardrooms of Rome, in a modest family home rather than a palace. Jesus wasn't born in New York City. He was born in Blonox. Now, in light of these initial observations, let me suggest some others. God's people should never allow the seemingly big things of this world to make us feel small. We should never grant the unbelieving world permission to make us feel powerless, irrelevant, ignorant, unsophisticated uneducated or unimportant now the world will try to make us feel that way in unrelenting determined fashion but we should never grant them permission and we should never grant the world the permission to render us silent because while we may be obscure in the sight of the world while we may appear small in the grand scheme of things, we are not obscure in the sight of God. He describes us as his treasure, his beloved, his children, his people, his possession, his inheritance, and his joy. He tells us that he is in us through His Spirit, that He is working through us through His Spirit. Our names are inscribed upon the palm of His hand. Our names are recorded in His book of life. He is going to restore the universe for our benefit. And each of us has a role to play in what He's up to. And what He's up to is the biggest, most important undertaking in human history. So in light of that, God's people should never allow the seemingly big things of this world to nudge us towards discouragement or despair. Now, the temptation to be discouraged, the temptation to despair, I get it. It's strong. It's unrelenting. But it was the same way in Mary and Joseph's world. In Joseph and Mary's world, Rome possessed all the big guns. Rome controlled the world of politics. Rome controlled the world of finance. Rome controlled the world of education. Rome controlled the arts and entertainment. And, yes, Rome was the world's premier military power. All that to say, Rome determined the narrative. And Rome aligned everything to fit Rome's chosen narrative. Now, if you're paying attention, that should sound familiar. Because in the world in which we live, the powers of unbelief determine the narrative. They control politics, they control finance, they control education, they control art and entertainment, they set the narrative, and they shape everything to fit their preferred narrative. There's nothing new under the sun. So, Rome possessed all the big guns, but we now know that while Rome possessed the big guns, Joseph and Mary were the possessions of a big God. And so, the events surrounding the incarnation affirmed that Rome controlled the temporary cultural narrative, but God controls the eternal spiritual narrative, and the former will always yield to the latter. God always has the last word in the universe He created. Now, His movement towards having the last word often begins quietly, as it did with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't happen immediately. We're not there yet. Rarely happens all at once. But it always happens, and it always will. That's why I would encourage you, don't shape your life or allow your life to be shaped by some temporary cultural narrative. Let your life be shaped by God's eternal spiritual narrative. Don't let your life be shaped by something that has an expiration date attached to it. Let your life be shaped by that which is eternal. Something else I observe in the particulars of Jesus' arrival is the fact that the trip to Bethlehem was an unwelcomed inconvenience with unwelcomed costs for a couple already stressed by attempting to explain a virgin birth and a pregnancy to a largely skeptical community and family. Other than that, it was a piece of cake. (laughs) Think of how hard it was for Mary and Joseph to try to explain what was going on. There's no reference point. There there had never been a virgin birth. They couldn't say, well, this is just like. There was no just like. And it would never be repeated again. They had to live with the glances that communicated disgust. They had to live with the whispers when they walked by. They had to live with the knowledge of people saying very unkind things about them. And, and what, what did they have to counteract that? But, but an angel told us. Now there's a frame of reference most everybody can relate to. So in the midst of all that stress, now time off from work, hard travel. Expense, wondering about housing. But it all reminds us that when God's directing your life, events that appear as a nuisance may prove necessary to fulfilling His plans, His plans for you and what He plans to do through you. See, the prophet Micah had many centuries earlier prophesied that Messiah would arrive where? In Bethlehem. So God used the unwelcome demands of a Roman census and Roman taxes to get Mary and Joseph exactly where they needed to be to fulfill his prophecy. And for that reason, I'd like to suggest when unwelcome interruptions arise in your life, And sometimes it feels like the totality of your life is just unwelcomed interruptions. But when those arise, don't waste time pouting. Don't waste time doubting the goodness of God. Don't waste time accusing yourself of some imaginary failure that has brought this upon you. And don't ask the proverbial why questions. Why, God? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why them? Jesus promised new wine, but that wasn't the kind of whining he was talking about. eh? Instead, when you're suddenly facing unwelcome, uninterrupted, undesirable interruptions, inconveniences, I'd suggest we should pray this way. Lord, I don't know what's going on, but help me to get this right. I don't know what's up here, Lord. You know I didn't order this. You know I don't like it. But help me to get it right. Because this nuisance might be necessary for what you're doing in me and what you want to do through me. The skeptical people in Israel saw Jesus' birth in a manger as an indictment, indicative of his inferior status. But we now recognize the fact that he shared indoor space. Think integral garage in a home when you think manger. The fact that he shared indoor space with livestock was God's sense of humor, it was God's subtle indictment of the people who were skeptics. It was God's indictment of the deficiencies in their souls. Here's why I say that. Earlier, God spoke to their ancestors. They're stubborn, always rebellious, always doubting ancestors. And he said this to them. The ox knows its owner. The ass knows where its master's crib is. But my people, Israel, don't know or understand anything. So when the Messiah of Israel was born in the place of the ox and the ass, it was a subtle ghetto slap from God for the folks that thought they knew more than he did. The quiet, unassuming birth of the Messiah suggests and shouts my title. Little is much if God is in it. Because of the God who created the universe, the God who holds it together by the word of his power, the God who created you and knows you better than you know yourself, if that God is in you, if that God is with you, if that God is for you, how could you ever be little? Little is much if God is in it. And for that reason, God's people should never let society make us feel insignificant. It's not likely we'll find ourselves on the cover of time. We likely won't find ourselves pursued by the story-starved paparazzi of TMZ. It's far more likely we'll find ourselves mocked and disparaged. But rest assured... The future will reveal that we have been part of something much bigger and far more significant than anything the supposedly powerful people and forces are plotting and planning this moment. Because in our new resurrected bodies, we will be ruling and rejoicing with Jesus in a restored Creation long after Washington, Wall Street, Hollywood, the United Nations, and every other human endeavor has been consigned to history's landfill. When Jesus stepped into the world, Caesar was the big dog. But he proved to be little more than lint on the pages of history. A Hebrew baby born in Bethlehem, nothing. But he proved to be the God who created the world and who gave Caesar his breath. If I can go off script for just a moment, and of course I can, I've got the mic. You don't need me to tell you we are living in a time when followers of Jesus are more openly under attack than at any time in my short lifetime. And the attack is growing in its intensity, in its unfairness, in its viciousness. But sadly, I'm watching in the face of those attacks, I'm watching some who name the name of Jesus try to quell the attacks by compromising God's truth, by making concessions to an unbelieving world in the hopes that that will, will end the denigration and end the opposition and perhaps grant us a little bit of favor in their sight. Let me remind you why that is a fool's errand, and it comes from Scripture. Two things. The Word of God says the natural man, those who have not been born again by the Spirit, those who have not had the lights turned on, the natural man cannot understand the things of God. To the natural man, the things of God will be foolishness, they'll be absurdities, they'll be unthinkable. And you can't make the unthinkable true to the unbelieving because they can't grasp it. It's akin to trying to describe how the internet works to somebody raised in an unknown tribe in the heart of the Amazon jungle in Brazil. There's no frame of reference. You can describe it beautifully. They're not going to get it they're not going to get it. And even that fails in comparison. The reality is the natural person cannot understand the things of God. And the second truth Scripture tells us, the natural mind is continually at odds with God. The Bible uses the word at enmity with God. It's an enemy of God. It sees God as its enemy. So people who don't know Jesus are always going to see the truth of God's Word and the proclamation of the church as something to be hated, something to be rejected. They see it as the enemy. You're not going to change that. Only the new birth changes that. So no matter what you say, no matter what you do, you can bend over backwards The world isn't going to get you, and the world isn't going to like you. But they didn't get Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus, and he said, if that's how they treated me, that's how they'll treat you. Don't get discouraged by that. That's just the reality. It's temporary, but it's the reality. But yet I watch people hoping to be seen in a better light by the unbelieving throwing away what Spirit-filled believers have believed of God's Word for over 2,000 years, as if the Holy Spirit has suddenly changed in the early days of the 21st century in the United States. As if the Holy Spirit didn't know truth when He put it in Scripture. As if the Holy Spirit now needs to modify God's truth because Americans know better. I hear people say things like, well, we didn't know back then what we know now. Now, because of science, we know this, that, and the other. Science is so far behind the Holy Spirit in understanding the universe, it will never catch up. The Holy Spirit was there making the universe. Holy Spirit doesn't need any scientists to tell them how things work. And those people who interpreted Scripture a certain way a thousand years ago, they had the same Holy Spirit we have today. That hasn't changed. God's Word hasn't changed. And God's Word shouldn't change just because Hollywood says so, or Washington says so, or some politician says so. And here's what happens when you compromise. They don't like you. They just assume that even you don't believe what you say you believe. But they don't like you. But here's what happens. When you compromise God's truth in an effort to have the world think well of you, you compromise your own walk with Jesus, and you compromise their opportunity to know there's something better because the world has been most profoundly changed by the people who have contradicted it the most, not the people who have echoed it. We're living in a culture that increasingly is kicking God to the curb. This culture long ago invited God to step off. Now our children can't get through the day without some chemical. Our suicide rates are spiraling. Despair is dominating countless lives. The foundation of society, the home and the family, disintegrating. And the early chapters and statements of Genesis in the beginning, God created male and female, He created them. all those things are being systematically one by one by one attacked with atheistic evolution, transgender, gay marriage, and on and on and on and on it 's a deliberate full scale assault on the opening chapters of Genesis that lays the foundation for everything else in the Word of God. And Christians who say, oh, but to remain relevant to these folks, to remain relevant to them, we're going to have to compromise a lot of these things, otherwise they won't hear us. If you compromise, you aren't worth hearing. Because all you're doing is echoing the lies that have ruined their lives rather than offering God's truth that would restore their life. Know who you are! Know who God is. And that doesn't mean you walk around like an arrogant fool. That's another problem entirely. But it means you don't let those who are foolish drive you away from everything that is good. See, sin never delivers the goods. Things are really ugly in our nation. They're probably going to get uglier. But in that ugliness, people may just begin to wake up a bit and say, you know, this isn't working. And maybe what those Christians have been saying, maybe there's merit to it. But we better be saying what God says. And not trying to make the world think well of us. Joseph and Mary were little. God's eternity-changing work began small. The world looked at it and scoffed and thought it was nothing. But the people who scoffed are nothing. And here we are celebrating the little quiet thing that God started. If you're a believer, you're part of that. Don't compromise it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't let the world make you feel insignificant. If they call you ignorant, they call Jesus worse than that. Get over it. It's a privilege to be put down because you love Jesus. But those who are willing to be put down with him will be raised up with him. And five minutes after you're on the other side, what the New York Times had to say about you won't mean squat. Think long range, not short range. That wasn't in the script. You won't be charged extra for that. (laughs) Had to get it off my heart. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we live in a world that's all about noise and big boasts and empty promises, a lot of fluff, very little stuff. We live in a world where image triumphs over substance. Form triumphs over substance. And error often triumphs over truth. But Lord, you aren't intimidated by that, and we shouldn't be either. Because just as was the case when Jesus was born, while Rome was running its course, you were quietly coming down the back streets of history to secure the future. Lord, when we find ourselves on the back streets with you, help us to rest assured that little is much if God is in it. And I pray we would not give permission to the world to make us feel little And we will not give them permission to nudge us towards disparagement and discouragement, but we would remember the one who controls the spiritual narrative will have the final word over the cultural narrative. And that's the one who lives in us by grace and mercy. We pray these things for the honor of Christ, for the welfare of his people, and so that we can give a clear witness to a broken world. And we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in case we don't see you Christmas Eve, let me extend to you my wishes that you would have a spirit-led, Christ-centered, life-encouraging celebration of Messiah's birth. Have a blessed and Merry Christmas.